Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, October 6th. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing, making beer at home. Well, this week, it's our Great American Beer Festival coverage, part one. Andy Sparks and I got so much information and so many interviews at uh, GABF that I've decided to split it up. This week, we talk about the way professionals evaluate hops, our overview from the festival, and a peek behind the scenes of Sam Adams' Utopius with a Sam Adams brewer who works with a $100 a bottle beer. So, first, let's take a peek in the mailbag. Ethan from Atlanta wrote in to say a lot of nice things about the show and to suggest we interview John Palmer to talk to him about batch sparging. That's an all-grain technique. I think that's a great idea. Ethan also suggested we talk about kegging and bottling. Well, I actually did an interview with Andy Sparks on kegging that I haven't had a chance to run yet, so look for that one in a couple of weeks. Andy from Staffordshire, England, wrote in to say he's been homebrewing about a year and is completely hooked. He says he spent a couple of months in Oregon recently and is impressed with the craft beer in that area. He has a couple of questions for us. First, Andy is kegging his beer in a Cornelius keg, or a corny keg, and force carbonating it. He wants to know how to bottle it to share it with friends. I asked Andy Sparks for help with this question since he's our kegging expert. Andy says he can, or Andy from our Andy, not the Andy from England, he says you can bottle your beer from your keg a couple of ways. He says you can buy a counter-pressure bottle filler, which essentially makes the pressure inside the bottle the same as the pressure in the keg and keeps it from keeps the beer from foaming up. However, Andy says these are hard to use. Alternately, uh, he says you can pre-chill your bottles to be the same temperature as the keg, then use as little pressure as possible to push the carbonated beer out of the keg and into the chilled bottle. Uh, some foaming will occur, uh, which will push the oxygen out of the bottle, and that's a good thing. Uh, Andy says just cap over that foam, and it will uh, eventually settle. In fact, it may settle pretty quick. Andy from England also asks if he can use a plastic carboy for secondary fermentation. Well, Andy, you can use plastic carboys for fermentation, but they're usually not the recommended method. Plastic tends to scratch over time, and this makes it hard to clean and sanitize. Glass is better in this regard. And here's a tip. I used to buy spring water in glass carboys for brewing because I, I like to use the, the good spring water from around my hometown. I'd use the water for brewing and the uh, carboy that I got with the water for secondary fermentation. Now, after use, you can return the glass carboy, cleaned of course, and uh, either get a new one or collect the deposit and uh, take that home with you. So there you go. You can you can use a, a free carboy if you can find a glass one. Of course, not all not all bottled water or spring water comes in in glass uh, carboys nowadays. Bob, our prolific brewing friend from St. Louis, checked in to say with the NFL season coming on, he's going to be brewing every week. He enjoys American style pale ales, wheat beers, and Irish stouts. Bob suggested we do a show on yeast, and Bob, that's that's been on my list for, for quite a while. Uh, Bob also does a, a podcast. Uh, it's called Snake Alley that you can find on garagepunk.com. Uh, and uh, in that podcast, he reviews 
B-movie feature films, and a variety of uh, he plays a variety of music from the public domain. It's a fun show, uh, maybe not one for the kids, but I thought it was fun to listen to, and I'll put a link to it on uh, basicbrewingradio.com. Wayne from Lansdale, Pennsylvania, wrote in to say thanks for the podcast. He says he's brewed only a handful of batches in a short time, but after listening to the show, he's motivated to work on a Thanksgiving-themed brew. Well, thanks uh, for the note, Wayne, and uh, that sounds tasty. Let us know how it turns out. Ryan from Atascadero, California, says he's made mead and is looking to get into brewing beer. He says he enjoys wheat beers, stouts, and strong amber ales. Ryan asks what he should brew for his first batch. He asks what we recommend. Well, I say brew what you like, Ryan. I would shy away from doing a a lager or an especially high-gravity beer like a barley wine for your first batch uh, because those can get uh, a bit tricky. But I think if you like wheat beers, stouts, and amber ales, find a recipe or an ingredient kit and go for it. Good luck, and and again, let us know how it turns out. Aaron from La Habra, California, wrote in to let us know that uh, Podcast Alley had uh, a mistake connected with our uh, podcast on their site, and I uh, contacted them to fix it, so let's hope they do that uh, soon. I appreciate the help on that, Aaron. Fred from Apex, North Carolina, wrote in to say he liked last week's episode on tasting, and he says he's been to some homebrew competitions where he's seen judges have a cigar between judging rounds, and he wonders how that affects their taste buds. Well, I don't know. In my experience, uh, my taste buds are dulled after a a cigar, although I haven't had one in a while. I've written uh, Scott Herness to see what he thinks about that. You know, maybe the judges were uh, getting ready to uh, judge smoked porters. You never know. Morgan from Oakland wrote in to add another comment to the uh, bleach debate. He says, if you go through all the trouble of rinsing with boiling water after uh, sanitizing with bleach, why would you not just sanitize with boiling water? Morgan says he's been sanitizing corny kegs with uh, 200-degree water for almost a year with no problems. Good point. Thanks, Morgan. We actually ran into Morgan at a mead tasting at uh, the Great American Beer Festival. It's kind of a funny story. He had written this letter before we met, and it was uh, completely accidental that we ran into him at this mead tasting. And it was cool uh, to run into him like that. We have a, I got so excited, I took a picture. We, and we have a picture of him on our Great American Beer Festival picture page that you can find with the description of this episode on basicbrewingradio.com. We also ran into listener Brian from Englewood, Colorado, who we've been uh, riding back and forth uh, with. Who was, uh, he was helping to serve up the beers in Denver. And you can see a picture of him, too. So it was exciting. And, and during, the, during the coverage of the uh, GABF that you'll hear in just a moment, you'll uh, hear about some other close encounters with uh, Basic Brewing Radio listeners uh, out there in Denver. It was a lot of fun. Well, if you'll remember, in this past week's show, Eric from Minneapolis asked what he should buy next, a wort chiller or a bigger pot. Well, I asked for your input, and I I got got a lot of good advice uh, from listeners. Well, I told Eric that I would buy the wort chiller now and the bigger pot later. I figure that uh, you can use the chiller now on the smaller batches in uh, cooling down not only your wort but the the water that you'll boil to to use with it. And you can use the uh, chiller when you eventually buy the bigger pot, which you'll probably do anyway. Uh, But if you buy the big pot first... 
you'll wish you had the wort chiller to cool down the larger volume of water. Well, Drew from St. Paul, Minnesota, is thinking along the same lines. He says he enjoys the hobby more when he can reduce the wait times in the brewing process. He'd buy the chiller first and then go to a restaurant supply store to get the pot, and hopefully it would be cheaper there. By the way, he says his favorite wort chiller is a St. Paul snowbank. We don't we don't get many of those here in Arkansas. Ryan from Oceanside, California, says this. He says the question is quite a paradox. It seems to me that if you're doing a partial wort boil, then you must be adding cold water to the fermenter to make up the remaining volume. In that case, I wouldn't think you'd need a chiller at all. However, if you purchase a larger kettle, then it's going to be a pain trying to cool down all that hot wort in a timely manner. I suggest he save his money and buy a combo kit from a place like Beer Beer and More Beer. That's in California. If I remember correctly, they will match a kettle and immersion chiller and even notch the lid so that it fits on nice and snug. Rick wrote in to say chiller or large pot? Both. He says he wouldn't use one without the other. Rick reminds us that it's important to cool down the wort quickly to avoid bacteria, DMS, and diacetyl introductions, all of which can cause off flavors in the beer. Rick says get the the big pot at Goodwill. He says he's bought two pots at his local Goodwill store and never paid more than 15 bucks. He also suggests eBay and Craigslist online to look for brewing equipment. Good tip. Brendan from Lincoln, Nebraska, recommends that Eric make his own immersion chiller out of soft copper. He says 30 feet of a 50-foot coil of 3-8-inch copper would do nicely. Get some hose clamps and some 3-8-inch ID hose and fittings and hook it up to the sink or garden hose. Brendan says you can make it cheaper than buying it already made, and you can use a paint can or corny keg to guide the coiling of the cooler. Well, John from Bolton, Massachusetts, takes our short wish list and adds a couple more onto it. And here are his picks. Number one, a chiller to reduce the lag time and off flavors. Number two, a 10-gallon pot to make bigger batches in about the same time. Three, a 6.5 to 7-gallon glass carboy. I guess you'd need a couple of those if you're doing double batches. And four, a 10-gallon brew pot with a spigot and false bottom. And five... A propane cooker. He says it's faster than the stove and doesn't smell up the house. Well, that sounds like a Christmas list to me, John. I hope you've been a, a good boy this year. Well, thanks to everybody for sending in your tips. Eric now has a few choices to make, but at least he's got some good options. I appreciate all the input. Uh, one more email from someone who's asking for advice, and maybe we can help. Uh, Greg from Hawaii is interested in home brewing, but being in Hawaii, it uh, gets pretty warm. He uh, asks if there are recipes that are suited for the warm climate. Well, the issue, of course, here is fermentation temperatures. Lager yeasts like it pretty cool. Ale yeasts can tolerate temperatures uh, up until the mid-70s, uh, but some prefer to keep uh, ales uh, below 68 degrees. Uh, if they get too warm, uh, the yeast starts to produce overly fruity flavors or uh, flavors like butterscotch and you don't want that. Belgian yeasts are said to uh, like temperatures. I've heard even up into the 80s, but I haven't had any experience with them personally. But you should check with the yeast manufacturer to see what the ideal temperature for your yeast strain is. You know, it gets pretty hot here in Arkansas, too, but, you know, we rely on air conditioning a lot to help us out, 
and I'm not sure that that uh, is the case in Hawaii. Um, in fact, the time that we went there years ago, it seems like open doors and windows and walls uh, were the rule. So if you live in a warm place like Hawaii, how do you keep your beer at the proper temperature during fermentation? I suppose uh, you'd use the same strategies as someone anywhere who's lagering a beer. Uh, some buy big freezers and get an external control device to keep the temperature where they want it. Others put their fermenting carboys in tubs of ice water to keep the temperature down. And you can buy a stick-on thermometer for the carboy to help monitor where you're at and how much water and ice to use. You can also freeze water in plastic soft drink bottles and put them in the tub of water with the carboy and just trade them out with the freshly frozen ones from the freezer when they melt. And if you want to take it a step further, you can get uh, sheets of foam insulation and surround the, f the uh, fermenter uh, to keep the cool in. And also, I've heard if you just need to lower the temperature just a couple of degrees, you can drape a wet towel over the carboy and set a fan to blow on it, evaporating the water and uh, cooling the beer. But let's throw out the question to our listeners. Do you live in a warm place like Hawaii? Uh, if so, how do you control the temperature of your fermenting beer? If you've got any more ideas, send them to james at basicbrewing.com or use the contact form on basicbrewing.com. And once again, thanks to everybody who's emailed their comments and suggestions. It's, it's always great to hear from, from everybody. Now... Let's uh, get to the meat of the subject for this uh, episode. Andy, uh, Andy Sparks and I went to the Great American Beer Festival, and we were able to go to some events that were not open to the public, thanks to the, uh, the press pass. Uh, on Sunday, before we came home, we sat in the hotel room to go over all the great information and inspiration that we had received. Wendy, here we are. It's uh, Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning, right? It sure is. Unfortunately, we've got to go home soon. And uh, we're, we're here in the hotel room, kind of wrapping up the Great American Beer Festival. And uh, I guess we got to think back to Thursday when we first came. Uh, we were wearing our, our basic brewing uh, podcasting T-shirts, and they came in handy because when we arrived at the airport, we were looking for ground transportation to get to the hotel, and we ran into... Uh, a guy, uh, Scott from uh, from Fayetteville, who came up and said, uh, "Hey, I listened to that podcast." Yeah, it was terrific. Uh, we got to meet him. It turns out he said he was actually listening to the podcast on the flight out, uh, as I was. And 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 Scott said, "Well, you guys need a ride, you know." And of course we did. Yeah, <laughs> he said, "My brother-in-law Ronnie uh, has a van. He's going to pick me up, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind giving you guys a ride to the hotel." So. Sure enough, uh, Ronnie uh, is also a listener to the show. It's terrific, actually. Ronnie turns out to be one of my customers at my Fayetteville Humber shop. So uh, I had already met him once before, but uh, anyway, they uh, terrific guys gave us a ride downtown right to our hotel. That's right, and uh, uh, we took a picture of him. So we've, you know, I'm going to have the picture page out there. So we we got a picture of uh, Ronnie and Scott, and we are grateful for their their help to get us uh, getting us uh, from the airport. That really started off the trip. On a good foot, and then later on, we were able to uh, we met their their father-in-law because they they married sisters, I guess, and their father-in-law uh, Gerald from uh, Springdale Springdale yeah. had also listened to the show, 
And uh, so it was good to meet him. We talked a lot about uh, Belgian beers because he, he spent some time in Belgium. Yeah, terrific guy. Uh, has a lot of interesting stories about his time in Belgium that I'm sure you'll share with the listeners uh, down the road. Yeah, we might might even have a, an interview if we, if we do a Belgium uh, uh, show. Anyway, we the first stop, and and again, we're all we're grateful to uh, to Scott and Ronnie for the ride. Uh, our first stop or official uh, duty was to go to the uh, Brewer Supply Group party that uh, uh, Gerard uh, Lemons was uh, uh, kind enough to invite us to after he appeared uh, on our show, and we had some really good beers there. And uh, we witnessed some uh, BMX biking inside the uh, Brewer Supply Warehouse. Uh, that was pretty funny. They uh, they had BMX bikes racing amongst the pallets of malt in the uh, in the warehouse. That was pretty interesting. <laughs> they and they had uh, you know we were browsing around the the giant you know the pallets of uh, the big bags of all the different kinds of malts that Brewer Supply Group has, and it was very interesting. Uh, they also had. Uh, cuts of bales of, of hops out uh, for sampling the different varieties of hops. Uh, these are called brewer's cuts. And uh, again, I got some pictures of those. And uh, we ran into Cullen Dwyer from the New Mexico Brewer's Guild who was sampling those hops. And, and he took us through the process that brewers use to sample hops. Yeah, it was really nice of him. Uh, we, we went up and were looking and sniffing at the hops, and, and he took the time to actually go through the professional's way of evaluating hops with us. Very interesting. They call these brewer's cuts, and uh, they're just, yeah, exactly. Once they compress the bale, they actually just take a big knife and they cut a block out of the side of every 50th bale, uh, just as samples for brewers to, to check out and evaluate the hop quality. Now, if I'm a home brewer and I'm, I'm at my home brew store... And I'm checking out uh, their hops, their whole hops. Mm-hmm. Take us through the process again. You just showed us the, the proper way to evaluate a hop for, for its character. Well, you know, hopefully if you're in a homebrew shop, they're going to have the hops prepackaged in a, in a vacuum-sealed foil pack that they stay fresh. So you're not really going to be able to do this, but I think once you open up your package, I think it'll be uh, useful to, to do a hop rub and to evaluate it. It's just so you can compare uh, the quality of our hops from, say, the last time you got the same variety. What they do is uh, they, they, they'll do a, uh, a hop rub. You know, and from a brewer's cut, you look at the side of a block of hops here, and uh, you can tell a lot of things just from that. Now, I was uh, saying that you... You can't necessarily, even if you see brown in there, that doesn't necessarily mean that the hop is bad. Because sometimes it'll be browning uh, just in the harvesting or, or just from wind damage and stuff. Uh, they could just still be very good hops. Uh, a lot of yellow indicates a lot of lupulin, which is generally a good quality, especially in a, in a high alpha hop. What we're looking at now is whole hops. It would be a little different with hot pellets. Uh, and you could do the same thing with hot pellets. If, if I was using pellets, I'd probably... Um, I'd get them a wet, you know, and let them soak up some water. Uh, but if you're using whole hops, this is the best way to do it. Here, I'm going to break off a little piece of this 2005 Centennial. This is the first I've seen of it. Uh, it looks like it's pretty low alpha, 7.4%. Usually I like to see Centennials around 10. Uh, but here, I'll take off, well, there's probably two or three cones here. And the first thing I'll do is I'll hold them in my hands, and I'm just give them, going to give them one rub. That's it. Okay, now I'm going to smell them. And you're cupping your cupping your hands together, kind of, and, and blocking out the outside smells. Yeah, and and to kind of you, you cup your hands together to sort of concentrate the aroma too, and hold it in there. So you, 
just give it one one rub, and you smell it, and uh, and then I'm going to rub it more vigorously this time until I can really kind of feel it warm up. That's like, you know, 10 or 12 rubs or something, and then smell it again. And you'll smell different things, uh, and, and they're, they're both different uh, components, this kind of surface components and more sort of uh, in-depth uh, components, uh, the heavier oils that only come up, uh, you know, once you warm them up a little bit. And, and what kinds of, how would you, you, you were characterizing the, uh, was it the Chinook as uh, being piney? Yeah, and, Chinook, and Chinook often, you, you use the word minty, I think that's good. Uh, usually once you've brewed with it, it comes across as piney, yeah. And then and take us through some of the others, like Centennial, what do you get off of that? Um, well, you know, what you're going to get from the hop rub is important, though you also got to remember uh, if you're dry hopping your beer, it's going to be a lot like this. But if you're using it as a kettle addition, uh, you're going to get different flavors than you're than you're smelling right now. Those aromas are going to escape pretty quickly in the boil. Well, they're they're going to escape and they're going to change. I think it's a it's a it's a huge myth that it doesn't matter what you boil with because it does matter that the, the flavor of the hop that you're using, even in a 90 minute addition is going to have a profound imp- impact, but I think those oils are going to be, uh, are going to combine in complex ways with uh, with your wort, and uh, those flavors are going to stay in there, but they're going to be different from what you're smelling from a fresh hop. So a hop is, is not a hop is not a hop. That's right. You know, it's, it's not just alpha acid. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's complex, and whatever you have in your hop is going to affect the, the flavor of your beer. Uh, otherwise, you know, you look at a classic brew like a Pilsner Raquel, if they're just looking for alphas, why would they use all sots? Which they do. They use all sots. And, if, uh, you know, why wouldn't they just use a hop extract or, uh, you know, some high alpha thing like uh, here we got uh, Columbus Tomahawk Zeus? Uh, they would never use that because it just doesn't have the right character for their beer, you know, even for their boil. Um, this is an interesting one, a new high alpha hop, a lot of character. Uh, Columbus, I think, is the... I'm not sure about this. I think Columbus is the word used by Hop Union, but also Tomahawk and Zeus are uh, trademark names. They're all the same hop, though. High alpha variety, a lot of character. And also at the Brewer Supply Group uh, party, we were able to sample some really good ales in a can. That's true. Um, One of the people that provided uh, a bunch of the food and entertainment for the uh, Brewers Guild party was a brewery called Oscar's Blues Brewery, uh, and they have uh, something called Dale's Pale Ale. It comes in a can. They also have uh, another uh, Scottish ale called Old Chub that comes in a can as well. Both would be terrific in uh, situations where you you can't have bottles, like uh, going on the river or going to the beach, Uh, and they're fantastic beers, really uh, a great thing to see some people using cans to deliver uh, high-quality products. Yeah, hope, of course it's not available in, in our neck of the woods yet, but hopefully it's so good that uh, it will catch on and, and get some distribution. And it would be good beer in in whatever container it was in. It, it stacks exactly. up it, it exactly. stacks up to other bottled beers, and, and it's just a darn good beer. Well, you know, the truth is the whole can thing is a misconception. A lot of people have that uh, somehow uh, putting beer in a can is going to make it uh, have funny flavors or off flavors but the truth is the uh, all the aluminum cans they use nowadays are lined with a, a plastic lining that keeps them very safe and very 
uh, protected, and as a matter of fact, in some ways, is uh, safer and, and better than the like clear bottles or green bottles, mm-hmm. uh, where you can have some changes to develop in the beer's flavor. Um, so I would recommend if you can find uh, Dale's Pale Ale in a can somewhere near you to go out and try it. It's ter- it's terrific. Yeah, and we we appreciate the food. Uh, they had pulled pork, which is very good, and uh, beans and all that. And uh, we also appreciate uh, Brewer Supply Group for for having us for that event. And, of course, the main event was downtown at the uh, Great American Beer Festival, where 1,669 uh, beers were available, and I don't think we even made a dent in that. But uh, what what are your general impressions of uh, the kinds and varieties uh, of beers that we saw there, Andy? Well, the truth is it's really it's difficult because there's so many beers on display and, and there for you to try. Uh, but it's, it's, it's pretty clear once you walk down the rows that there's a few beers that almost every brewery has, and that's uh, the pale ales, the IPAs, and now the double IPAs. Um, there was an awful lot of those. Lucky for me, those are the ones I like best, so I had a terrific time. Uh, I got nowhere near to try all the, the pale ales, uh, but uh, there was so many delicious ones uh, to try. IPAs were, were, were definitely... Uh, one of the more popular categories, and and when you talk about IPAs, one brewer that comes to mind uh, almost immediately is uh, <clears throat> is Dogfish Head, and we were able to try Dogfish Head. It was my first time to uh, try it, and I bring it up, uh, and you know this is a, this is a show for home brewers and not evaluating craft beers, but I bring it up specifically because they have the continuous hopping process, and they have the uh, the sixty minute IPA 90 minute and the 120 minute IPAs, uh, and these are are beers that are the hops are added continuously through those time periods. That's correct. Um, the the uh, brewer and the founder of uh, Dogfish Head, Sam Calagione, I'm not sure that's the exact pronunciation of his pronunciation of his name. He's a terrific guy. We got to talk to him a little bit, but one of his inventions or innovations in the brewing industry is something. Uh, he invented uh, called Sir Hopsalot, and uh, what it is, it's a continuous hopping device which, which basically puts hops in continually during the boil. Um, his first uh, Sir Hopsalot uh, hop robot was made out of an old-fashioned vibrating uh, football machine, which <laughs> would, I guess, just uh, vibrate the hops off the edge of a little pan and into the into the boiling wort for. The, the times, uh, so, you know, they have different uh, different boil times, 90, 60, uh, 120 minutes, so forth. Um, he's come up with a little more advanced version of that now that they use because they produce so much beer now. Uh, but he is uh, he's an innovator. He's come up with a lot of, a lot of different innovations um, that have uh, made his beer distinct and different, and uh, I'm pretty sure that he started out as a home brewer as well. And that, that's a process that, you know, we as homebrewers could, could adapt for ourselves, you know, even manually adding a little bit of hops at a time through the, through the boil. And let's talk about the character that the, that the beers had. The 120-minute, I was expecting to be blown away by the bitterness. Right. But, again, you know, the continually ho- continue hopping, continuous hopping process is going to add some, some hops at the front end of your boil, which is where you're going to extract all the bitterness. But as it as it goes on and on, the hops that are added later in the boil process add uh, aroma and flavor. So just because he added hops continually for 120 minutes, 
a lot of that is not going to provide bitterness. Now, certainly all the stuff that was added during the first hour is going to provide quite a bit of bitterness. But the stuff in the last final 45 minutes is going to add lots of flavor, lots of aroma. But again, the 120-minute is also a very big beer with lots of malt character, and they tend to age it quite a while. So I think the 120-minute we were having was like three years old. Three so years old, that's right. It's going to provide a lot of balance. That aging process is going to allow the flavors to mingle and mellow and give you a nice balance. And so the, the hop utilization, uh, like you said, during that first hour, all of those hops probably, because they've been in there for at least 60 minutes, you're going to get uh, pretty much full utilization of the alpha acids in those hops. But as you as you get closer to the end of the boil, that kind of uh, utilization line on the chart goes down, and then the hops that you added at the last of the boil are just going to be more for aroma. Uh, the 90 minute that we tried was uh, had quite a bit of hop aroma, uh, hop aroma, and we didn't know until after we tried it that it was actually run through a filter of whole. Uh, hops, experimental Japanese hops on the night that we first tried the 90-minute. Right. Uh, that was That's another one of his innovations. Uh, he calls that uh, Randall the Enamel Animal, and it's uh, basically <laughs> a giant water filter that they've taken some of, the, some of the insides out of, and they pack it full of whole hops, and then they pour their draft beer through this filter full of hops. So in essence, you're getting a, a dry-hopped beer almost immediately, you know, fresh, right off the tap. And uh, the hop aroma definitely came through. It, it was. It was. They were all delicious beers, the 120, the 90, and the 60. What was your favorite of the three? Well, I have to say I really enjoyed the 90. I'm, I'm quite, quite a hop head. And uh, they, uh, each night they used a different type of hops that they would push it through. Uh, as you said before, the first night they used an uh, experimental Japanese hop. And then the second night they actually had some hops that they, they had a sign-up that said these hops were picked less than 72 hours ago. So they're actually running it through very, very fresh hops. And then the third night, they had a different type of hop. I'm not sure which type that night. But each night, it was slightly different, but the hop aroma and flavor came through big time. It was delicious. Yeah, that, that's that's one thing that really came out, uh, I think, in this in, in all the, the tastings, or at least my favorite tastings, was the, you know, the really big nose on some of these beers, you know, the hop aroma and not only the bitterness, you know, you think of IPAs as, you know, at least in my mind, the first thing that comes to my mind is bitterness. But most of these beers were, were really well balanced, and it wasn't just about, you know, getting the shock value of the bitterness. There was the aroma and the flavor of the hops, uh, which is also an important, uh, are, are also important components of the taste. Um, one of the things that I noticed was that, there were a lot of beers, a whole lot of beers, that when you walked up, they would have a sign up and they would say, this beer has 100 IBUs, that would be the international bittering units, uh, which would mean that this, uh, bittering units, it's just stratospheric bittering units, but that it didn't bowl you over with uh, a, a puckered up mouth. You ended up, they, the trick to building these big, big beers is is to know how to balance the malt character and the hop character, and that they have to add enough malt to make the the beer balance. Uh, when you have that much hops in a beer, uh, it would come out uh, so bitter you couldn't drink it if they didn't add all that malt. So, you, what you get are these delicious beers full of flavor, full of caramel notes, full of malt, 
but along with that, you get the, the hop aroma from, from the hops and the, uh, the balance from the bitterness that is there. Yeah, the, the IBU number alone is deceptive. Uh, and one thing that Ray Daniels does in, in his uh, Designing Great Beers book is to explain that along with the uh, IBU is, is a ratio between the bitterness units and the gravity units. So in other words, a, a bigger beer with an IBU of a high number would be perceived as less bitter than a smaller gravity beer of, with a bitterness of, of the same number. So you, just looking at the IBUs is, is not an indication of how bitter the beer is going to be. It's all about the balance. Exactly. Um, you know, one thing I would point out to our listeners is that, uh, that it's, it is kind of difficult to brew some of these gigantic beers because it, you really have a fine point at which you balance all this stuff at. And if you get it a little off one or the other, it's going to be too sweet, too, too syrupy, or too much the other way, too much bitterness for the hop, for the malt character that the beer has. So I, I would suggest you approach brewing these gigantic beers slowly and build up to, uh, build up to it. Um, and, and try and strive for a balance because that's the, really the key. And you could, you could see it in all the award winners. There was, there was a great balance in those beers. There were so many of them out there. Um, the ones that were slightly off one way or the other are the ones that didn't make it, make the final cut. So it's, it's all about experimentation. If you, if you, if you brew a beer and you don't like it, taste it, examine what you don't like about it, and then go back and look at your ingredients uh, and, and fine-tune it. Don't give up. Exactly. You know, uh, that's, and that's the fun of doing this is that, you know, each time you brew, you, know, you, you learn a little bit more about uh, the craft. Um, and there's no reason to uh, discard a beer that's, let's say, too bitter or too malty. Uh, lots of people do things like uh, um, blending, uh, where you can take beers and blend them together. If you have one that's too bitter and, or one that's too malty, you can blend them with another beer and come up with a terrific beer. All the big breweries do that. Uh, most of the craft breweries don't do it, um, but a lot of the big breweries do that. And if you bottle condition over time, say a malty beer will become more dry as the yeast have time to work. Now you're talking about big beers and big balance. Uh, we tried uh, Sam Adams' uh, Utopius. Uh, Jim Koch was actually there. We've got a picture of him on the site. Uh, pouring Utopius from little pitchers. So this is, you know, beer that's $100 uh, a bottle. Uh, and there, you know, you could have uh, samples of it one ounce at a time, which is really the, the appropriate uh, amount to, to drink at a time. But uh, let's listen to our uh, impressions on the floor. It's kind of noisy, but you can hear us. Uh, listen to our impressions on the floor of Great American Beer Festival as we're trying Utopias for the first time. Wow, how about that? I think that's the strongest beer in the world. And it is delicious. You, you can't take more than just like half a sip at a time. Uh, the one ounce sampler is the perfect size, I think. Although, I think you got a little distracted with mine. I got a little more than you did. I think I got screwed. I think I got like $7 worth of beer right here. Well, let me swallow. I think you did. It is delicious. It's, it's like eating a piece of candy. It's just, it has all these caramel notes and fruity flavors. And it's, I'm really surprised. I really didn't think this was going to be a good beer based on how much alcohol it is in it. They say it's like 25% by volume. The highest uh, proof beer in the world 
it does taste like a beer. I'm, I'm surprised it tastes as much like a beer it is. It's really sweet and uh, syrupy in, in the body, but there's enough bitterness and there's enough alcohol in there, I think, to counteract that. Right. It, it does still taste like beer, but it, it depends who you ask. If you ask somebody that drank domestic beer, they, would, they wouldn't recognize this. But somebody that understands the character of beer, malt and hops, they would definitely see this as a beer. And it is uh, over the top, completely over the top. So good stuff, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, that was terrific. Uh, one thing that I probably didn't note was the, the, the delicious maple character of the beer. Um, and we did find out some more about that uh, from one of the brewers. That's right. We were invited to, uh, again, because of the press pass, uh, we were invited to some events that uh, we're happy to give you kind of a behind-the-scenes uh, look at. Uh, the Boston Beer Company and Sam Adams uh, invited us to have brunch with uh, Jim Koch, and uh, you know they had some uh, some breakfast, uh, and well, they had chili too. That was also made with uh, Sam Adams beers, actually recipes that had the beers in it. And, and uh, Andy looked over at the Utopia's table, where they were also giving away uh, you know little uh, glasses of uh, Utopia's. Uh, and noticed that there was a guy who was, you know, proudly decanting the the beer, and and uh, Andy said, you know, I bet he's involved in the brewing process. Why don't you go talk to him? And sure enough, it was uh, Robert Cannon, one of the brewers for uh, Sam Adams, who actually worked on uh, Utopias. Tell us about Utopias. Uh, Utopias is brewed in a Boston location. It is the only production beer currently brewed in Boston. It is uh, made with uh, two-row pale malt, and we use noble hops as well. It is a, a traditional German uh, brewing. We do first wort running only, and um, we age it with... Um, well, we, we ferment it on two different yeast strains. We use a proprietary ale yeast, and we also use a champagne yeast because, uh, as you and your listeners probably know, over a certain alcohol percentage, the yeast will, will um, cease to cease to work. So we use the champagne yeast to keep it going. And also, after we've, we've brewed, we normally do a series of brews, uh, four to eight brews, and we will continue feeding the, the batch that we've made. Uh, and once we've uh, done our last brew, we feed it a little bit of maple uh, sugar, a little maple syrup, excuse me, to uh, continue the fermentation to get it up to the levels that we want. Uh, we age it in, we, we age it uh, for, until we get the desired um, extract that we want, and then we will, uh, after we've decanted it and pulled it off the yeast, we will age it on uh, wood, and we use a number of different barrels. We use some bourbon barrels, and we also use some uh, whiskey butts. Uh, We also have some sherry and port pipes that we use, so it gets, it sees a number of different, and then we blend it all together to get the final result. So, so you can start to see why it costs $100 a dollars. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's labor-intensive, and we use a lot of different wood, absolutely. Uh, it takes quite a bit of time. It is um, in the wood for, for several months. You know, every batch is a little bit different, but it is in the wood for a long time, and you know, we have to babysit it and make sure, you know, take, take samples on a regular basis and taste it as well, which is a very difficult job, but one that I'm glad to have. <laughs> 
Do you have a home brewing background yourself? I did some home brewing before I got into uh, professional brewing. Um, not, not a bit. I was never a member of the AHA, but uh, I am familiar with it. I've actually done some judging for them. Uh, but I did I did brew some brews. I, I, I grew up in the Boston area and, and drank the domestic beers like everybody else, but I went overseas to uh, uh, Ireland to attend university, and I started drinking Guinness Stout, and then I looked into um, Cascales over in England as well. And when I moved back to America, I, I just couldn't find the, the, the same flavor that I was looking for that I'd become used to. Uh, so I did do some home brewing uh, on, on my own. I found it difficult to replicate my successes, though, unless I could keep my yeast growing. And I, I didn't have the setup for that. And I just fell into um, uh, working for Sam Adams and, and working in the brewing industry. And I got very lucky. And now I get to bring home my own beer as well. So it's, it's quite good. So is there anything else dramatic in the works like this uh, for, for Sam Adams or for the Boston Beer Company? Well, at the plant that I work at, we're always working on new recipes, new new products. Um, I can't give anything away at this point. We are tasting a couple of beers here today that, are, that we've worked on. Uh, we have a Bohemian Pilsner. We have a brown ale that we're asking people to vote on. And uh, whatever wins, we will produce uh, and, and make and sell to the public. Well, a- Andy and I voted, and we, we canceled each other out. Uh, so. uh, <laughs> I voted for the Pilsner. I thought it was delicious and uh, a little hoppier than most Pilsners, which I really like. So. Yeah, but they were both very good. So good, it, good. I'm glad to hear that. Choice. I like the brown ale as well, but the Pilsner is um, a favorite of mine because of the hops that we use, and uh, it, it really, really came out nice in my opinion. But again, I think they're both quality beers. And, and Pilsner tends to get kind of a bad reputation because... The word Pilsner is out there so often and, and is so kind of common. Uh, so you, are you hoping that if you, if the Pilsner wins that you'll kind of uh, help the, the reputation of Pilsners out there? That, that would be nice. Like you said, Pilsner does sometimes get um, a backseat in, in America, but uh, it is a fine style of beer, and we do hope that we can educate some people about the style. Very good. So we thank uh, Robert uh, Cannon for taking time to talk to us and not only you know talk to us about utopias but to talk to us about how uh, how it's made which I was surprised that he that he went into that uh, that much detail I hope he wasn't kind of giving away the keys to the castle there but uh, I think that there's enough proprietary uh, process in there that somebody won't be able to just listen to what he just said and, and make uh, you know utopias knockoff. Well, even if they tried, it would probably uh, bankrupt them if they tried to do that because it sounds like uh, it's quite an investment in ingredients and equipment to make this happen. So, But a delicious product. Um, I would love to have a bottle of it. I don't know if I can afford a $100 bottle of Utopias, but uh, I'm gonna be, it's going to be on my Christmas wish list. And it, and it would last a long time. I exactly. mean, it's not something that – it's not a lawnmower beer. You know, in the lawn mowing beer, it's it's something that would last a while. This is the sort of thing that you would uh, you would keep on the shelf, and when you had very special company over, you would pour out an ounce at a time, and and sip by the fire or wherever. It's it's a delicious uh, dessert. Um, I would probably suggest it not to be uh, a, along with dessert, but as the dessert. Mm. Um, just a very simple, sweet, uh, delicious finish to the evening. Yeah, in fact, at that uh, brunch, they had a rich chocolate cake that they that they served, and uh, really, too really too much with uh, with with the utopias. Yeah, it was interesting. Everything they served that day was prepared with uh, one of their beers. They had pancakes made with light beer, uh, with the Sam Adams light, and they had uh, chili made with beer, and they had. Uh, 
sausages that were boiled in beer. Really, they just they tried to really show us that it's very versatile. Um, and everything I had was delicious. The cake was very rich, and I didn't finish mine. Um, I wanted to move on to the Utopias, <laughs> to be really honest. And thanks again to Andy Sparks for all the help. You can visit Andy's homebrew store at uh, thehomebrewery.com. That's thehomebrewery.com. And be sure to check out our pictures from the festival by going to the description of this week's show on basicbrewingradio.com. Well, next week, more from the Great American Beer Festival. We talk about American Wild Ales, a hot topic nowadays, with Vinny Chilurzo from the Russian River Brewing Company. And he's an innovator in the field and makes awesome beers. Uh, we also talk about meads with Redstone Meadery's chairman of the mead, David Myers. And Ray Daniels from the Brewers Association talks about a new recipe to celebrate an old fan of beer, Ben Franklin. All that and more next week. If you have uh, brewing questions, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to uh, james at basicbrewing.com or just fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com. And please don't forget to tell us where you're from. And if you're wanting to get into homebrewing, while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, Basic Brewing Introduction to Extract Homebrewing. We'll walk you through the process step by step, and you can see a listing of the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD on the site. And if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it directly from us online. Well, that's all until next week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer. Production help, as always, for Basic Brewing Radio, and our website is provided by Kelly Dodson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of Active Voicing. We'll talk to you next time. So long.